Today on Rebuilders, we are talking about ecosystems of discipleship. Mm. We're going to be looking at how do you disciple the contemporary self? What defines the contemporary self? What are the challenges it presents? And how do we actually take people on a journey to become more like Jesus? What does that look like practically in your church? How do we think about this? What's the world we're emerging into? All that stuff and more today on Rebuilders. Excellent. It's a great episode. If you want access to uh, a list of any of the resources that we refer to in this episode, you can join our mailing list by heading to rebuilders.co and subscribing there. Let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both today? Good, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Doing well. Yeah, right. doing great over here behind the desk. Good to be here for another episode. Um, Summer vibes this this oh. this weekend. Yeah, yeah. although uh, less so this week. Less weekend, but I think like um, in terms of Melbourne, like yes, cultural summer vibes. Melbourne cultural summer vibes. Got it. It felt yeah. like particularly Australian Open just finished. Yeah, which yeah. is a big sporting event in our city, and it just felt like Melbourne is back. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. bounced back. Yeah. yeah, I was just having a look. Uh, over the couple of weeks of the Australian Open, which is tennis for those that aren't okay, uh, just over 900,000 people 900, attended across those couple of weeks. Wow. Just wow. insane. I think they were hoping for a million, so I got close. Um, but was it, I think it was the biggest ever, wasn't it? Attendance? I think so. Uh, I think 2019. Uh, what was I looking at? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yep, yep, yep. So, but I was in the city on uh, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. Um, and it just, like, I don't go into the city often, but it felt like very different and mm. yeah. very reminiscent of kind of pre pandemic vibes, I suppose. Just people everywhere, yeah. things to do. Like, went to the museum with the kids, and there's just a whole bunch of different things you could go to and like um, exhibition type of stuff. And went to restaurants, and it's just, it was happening. Um, it was happening. Melbourne's back to all our listeners. Thank yeah. you for your prayers. We have <laughs> <laughs> come back. Uh, and you might feel like this is a tourism ad and, you know, yeah. if you feel like travelling to Melbourne, come mm. say hi. Yeah, but there's lots of work. Yeah, okay. There's lots of work. <laughs> if you're a barista, come on down. <laughs> Forget tourism. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of work part of it. it you know. yeah. I did see something in the city. I, I'm pretty sure I saw this and it wasn't just a hallucination um, that I was walking past uh, one of the colleges downtown and I saw, I think they're advertising now, I think it was a master's in coffee making. Really? I'm pretty sure. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. It was very Melbourne. I remember so chatting, oh, this a couple of years ago now, chatting, went to, a, went to a barber and they were like, oh, yeah, like the Hairdressing Association of Australia, whatever it is, like had to bring back in the barbering course oh. like 10 years ago because it was – I could be way off with that fact, but that's what I heard. So there was mm. only hairdressers. They are only training hairdressers for oh. a few decades yeah, and then they okay. had to start training barbers because men started caring about they about their beards again. <laughs> oh, there you go. Is that, is that do you only go to university train beard technicians? <laughs> I started it. Wow. So, yeah. so if you'd like you, to Daniel. apply for Daniel's beard college, uh, uh, come down to Melbourne yeah. and you can work part-time as a barista. It's a 45-minute course. 45-minute mm. course. Yeah. yeah, great. It involves beard trimmers and wax. Mm. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well... Uh, today we are 
Moving into talking about discipling the contemporary self, um, and Mark, you you wanted to talk about ecosystems of discipleship, Mm. and you've just mentioned there that you uh, had spent a bit of time in the city over the summer break. Mm. Uh, What did you experience in there that has sort of led you to start to think about these ecosystems of discipleship? Well, I was doing what I often do over our big January break, which is trying not to think about work and then having my my brain continually coming up with great new ideas and thinking about <laughs> things. Um, I think people who may have read my book, Reappearing Church, uh, may remember the final scene in that book where I went in London, in East London, to where uh, John Wesley, the great sort of evangelist, uh, uh, disciple maker of a nation uh, had his sort of little base really mm. and there's a chapel there and there's the rooms where they had his classes which were his sort of part of his really discipleship ecosystem. You can see there's various buildings which had different functions, Sunday schools and, and all of that really was in stone uh, an example of the sort of discipleship ecosystem that John and Charles Wesley and people like that created in the 18th century to mm. respond to a changing cultural need. And uh, I was in our city and uh, went and had a look at uh, the Wesley Church, uh, which is, I think, in Lonsdale Street. And it was fascinating that they've just re-sort of done it all really beautifully. And it was almost an exact replica of what was in East London. Hmm. And I thought it was fascinating to see uh, our state, one of the sort of first churches, um, was uh, uh, the Methodist. I think it had the first official uh, uh, religious service done by... Uh, an ordained minister mm-hmm. and uh, really interesting, half uh, Indigenous people, half uh, European settlers and uh, it was the beginning of the creation in our city really of a replica of that that discipleship ecosystem. And so Wesley realised that people had changed, that the sort of feudal system had disappeared and the idea that people were stuck in particular parishes for a lot of their life to be cared for by, you know, one particular church. The Industrial Mm -hmm. Revolution was kicking off. Globalisation was kicking off. People were moving all around the world. And there was this freedom that people were having. There was a freedom that people had from being able to travel to work. Women were enjoying increasing freedom. Uh, There was this multicultural reality happening across the world of different people, different cultures, and and, and movement and freedom was was sort of defined the age. So he had to respond. How do you bring? And he was was someone who was a revivalist. So he's bringing back what he saw was the essence of the early church and his dynamism, but doing that in a contemporary 18th century uh, culture way, which responded to the cultural changes. So mm. I sort of sat there for a little bit. There's a there's a nice, uh, uh, I think it's a, a what do you call those trees that uh, olive? That, yes, yeah, it's a big olive tree yeah, out yeah. the back. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I was, You're I, was, I, was, I was worried I was going to be lost there, grasping for what tree <laughs> I was sitting under. But uh, there's an olive tree there, and sat under it. And I just thought, wow, I just felt the challenge to think similarly about our context. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what would it look like to respond to the challenges of our day? And I think that then led me to the next question of, well, okay, so the 18th century environment that that John Wesley in, what's the real one that we're in? You know, and how mm-hmm. would we go about creating an ecosystem of discipleship? And I think that question, it's a nice question to, to think about as a, on a summer's afternoon in the city uh, when you're on your holiday sitting under an olive tree. But I think really that's the pressing question that is before many people listening to this podcast that yeah. people are wrestling with and feeling the tensions of that. So I think the question I first then, as I thought through this strategically, 
the thing I came to was, I think the first thing is before you can work out an ecosystem, because I think lots of people are, are keen to talk about strategy and, and how you can get your head around this and, and implement. But I think the first question is, what is the cultural context that we find ourselves in? Mm. So that was the beginning point I began to think about. So with that in mind, you've mentioned that we are living in a world that billionaires created. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so that's that's the in our pre-chat, that was the little header that's going to guide us through our conversation. Um, I'm reading a book uh, by Peter Goodman mm-hmm. called Davos Man, uh, The World uh, That the Billionaires Created, I think is the title, The World How Billionaires Devoured the World. And it's actually quite a really interesting book. And if you think about it at different times in history, there's almost sort of archetypical characters which capture an age. Mm-hmm. You'd say in the 1970s it was the rock star in the West. In the 80s it could be, I don't know, Hollywood stars. Maybe the 90s it was supermodels or something like this. Um, but very much now if you think about the dominant sort of cultural figures that capture the landscape, it's billionaires. Yeah. It's your Jeff Bezos's. Uh, it's your Elon Musk's. I was watching the – Australian Open final with my my boys um, who are 11 and, um, you know, it cut to Bill Gates was out in the front yeah. uh, uh, row of the tennis and my kids, oh, Bill Gates, I can't believe he's in Melbourne and it's bizarre. You know, like for them it was almost like, wow, like seeing him in our city was this sort of crazy thing that perhaps I would have thought about when I was a kid if, I don't know, some music star or Hollywood star came to Melbourne. But in many ways, whether you're for them or against them, mm. really the, the conversation and culture is around the incredible power that these sort of billionaires have created. And, and Goodman in his book talks about Davos, which is the gathering that happens in the Swiss Alps where mm. in many ways these people get together and sort of shape their vision of the world and network and so on. And, and we could do a whole – maybe we'll talk about Davos more another time. We've touched on it at different points. But – Really, in many ways, the billionaires have emerged at the end and become a dominant sort of social social figure at really the end of that sort of 30-year period uh, that we often talk about, um, which, you know, begins, you could sort of say in the in a 40-year period, begins with really the rise of people like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, where in many ways the sort of philosophy, ideology of the West was to create this global market, to mm-hmm. sort of pull back uh, uh, you know, sort of financial regulations and to let the market run free. And this creates a world that often people talk about as neoliberalism, you know, and often people hear liberalism and they can think about that meaning the left, particularly for, from America. But neoliberalism is really the idea of having an unfettered market where, mm-hmm. in a sense, the market will, you know, determine our way forward. And and I read also over the holidays um, Byung-Chul Han's uh, book Psychopolitics where he talks about the sort of rise of the neoliberal individual. And he talks about um, the concept that this has created a new kind of individual. And as I read that book, it just began to sort of spark some of my thoughts around who is the person that we're actually sort of um, – Discipling. Yeah, okay. And he talks about that we've moved from a culture, which is a disciplinary culture, which many societies throughout history are, where there's a very strict moral code of what you should and shouldn't do. The culture of the should is the disciplinary culture. And almost all of our cultural imagination comes from this, whether we're saying we should go back to a more conservative view of the world where Mm. there are clear shoulds and shouldn'ts, or we should have a, a view of the world where we throw away the shoulds and shouldn'ts. All of our sort of cultural ideologies and visions of the future are often shaped by that sort of disciplinary society. 
But the sort of neoliberal world that has emerged is a very different one. And Hahn talks about power operates differently. And one of the ways power operates differently is instead of a world of shoulds, in a sense, you're less oppressed by the things that you should be doing and a sort of giant set of rules as to all the things you could be doing. Yes. So it's the world of can, it's the world of could, it's the world of possibilities, it's the world of opportunities. And this is a profound shift. And my sense is that this is one of the biggest shifts that people are living through. I think we experience this all the time in our ministries. We experience it in our personal lives. Um, and I think this is sort of this is coming down in really profound key ways. Uh, and, and I think if we're going to understand what is to create a discipleship ecosystem in our day and age, we need to understand how this shift from a culture of should to a, a, where people are oppressed by the should to a culture where people are oppressed by all the things they could be doing. We need to get our heads around that. Yeah, cool. Well, maybe one way we can um, kind of approach some of the key elements of this environment is to look at three things. Firstly, atomization. Yeah. So neoliberalism is the idea that the world should be arranged around a free exchange of goods and services. Mm -hmm. And it's this financialization of the world where, in a sense, that idea of the market is everywhere. And, and what this has done is it's sped up the already existing individualism that is in society um, and it's created an even more intense form of individualism. Yeah. If you look back um, at what created the West really in the post-war era, uh, you know, people like Robert Putnam have talked about the fact that there was these mediating institutions um, that people were dealing with the emergence of a sort of new individualism. And you can even trace this actually back to Wesley. Wesley created these sort of midweek um, sort of discipleship meetings and societies and classes mm. and bands. The Moravians did something very similar. But interestingly, in the culture, that was happening in other places at the same time. Yeah. You had the rise in London of coffee houses. Now, coffee houses back then weren't just bearded baristas uh, of um, uh, higher education in Melbourne. Um, <laughs> what, they, what they were were actually meeting places and people would join these coffee houses and you'd actually have discussions. Mm. And uh, there was all kinds of groups. The, in Edinburgh, I think I mentioned this recently in an episode, around the same time this happened, the Masonic Lodge kicked off, which was a way of people sort of having this quasi-religious gathering point midweek yeah. where people could use that new freedom they had to associate with who they wanted to, but do that in a way where it still built community, there was a sense of purpose, it was generating institutions. But the age of neoliberalism actually undermines institutions. It undermines those mediating institutions because being overly committed to something means that your options and your personal freedom is restricted. Yes. And the ultimate vision, and even if you think about, um, uh, you know, some of the sort of ideology that goes around these sort of billionaires, there's almost this cultural aspiration to be a billionaire because you can do what you want when you want to do it. Mm -hmm. The image of the billionaire is the image of the ultimately free person who can spend money on what they want to do. They can get in their private jet and they can travel around the world. They can even at Davos suggest solutions to the world's problems through just their own sort of genius and philanthropy without having to deal with governments. Uh, yeah, you know, like okay. it's like they're the ones who are going to come up with the solutions. So this idea of atomization is just accelerating in our culture. Mm. And we feel this very, um, I think, profoundly in the church because people are coming less. Uh, regular attendance has gone from every week to every two weeks, uh, every four weeks after the pandemic. You know, you, you often hear people talk about there's 800 people at my church, but I only get about 300 on a Sunday. 
Yeah. And so even we're having to change our language around how we talk about these things because people are being committed less. Another thing that's happening all over the place that very few people are talking about is, uh, you know, churches have had small groups. There was this big sort of uh, reconnection with small groups, which is something which Wesley did in the 80s and 90s. And people used to the idea of being in a small group, a growth group, a Bible study midweek. But an increasing problem that people are having in churches, and again, to hear this everywhere, rarely articulated, is that you know you may have a, a small group of 12 or 20 people, but you only ever get three people turning up at once. Yes. And so this atomization that people are coming less, they're less present, uh, is almost like one way you could look at it. It's almost like a mist. There's this diffusion of people's presence, a diffusion of their ability to come and, and, and contribute. And so one of the things that is defining neoliberalism is atomization. And I think there's very few people talking about this in the church with solutions at hand. You yeah. know, often we'll say things like, oh, we, we need to build community. We'll become a community church. But that is struggling against the wave and the ever-increasing atomization that's happening. People desire community. Everyone will talk about that. You get up in front of a group and say, oh, you know, we're, we're becoming more lonely, disconnected, atomized. People are like, yes, yes. But actually solving that, there's very little out there. Okay. Well, helpful to open this um, conversation. Let's move on to uh, seduction at scale. Yeah. So one of the things that Han talks about of this sort of neoliberal self is that power comes in a very different way. In a should culture, power comes from the top. Mm -hmm. um, there is clear rules and there's a clear playbook. And in a sense, the sort of language that we've often had about people, oh, you know, I lived in the 50s, was very repressive, or I came from a country that was very repressive, or back 100 years ago, these laws were very repressive. We're used to this word repressive. You know, Freud's mm. almost sort of analysis of the West was that people were experiencing psychoses and neuroses because their re desires were repressed. But what Hahn talks about is that in many ways has, has disappeared that the contemporary individual in the West actually is not dealing with subjugation, repression. Mm -hmm. What they're actually dealing with is seduction at scale mm. where they're not told what they can't have. They're given everything they can have at mass scale. Yes. So all of a sudden, you know, we go from, you know, the little gambling betting shop on the corner that a few guys trudge into with their newspapers or super keen on following the horse races and, you know, the person who loses money at that to – a whole generation of people having betting apps on their phones. Mm. We talk about pornography as just a mass industry, consumerism, uh, credit card debt societies, you know, from broadcast media to streaming where there's endless options. What you have now is this sort of like seduction at scale. And this presents huge challenges mm. to discipleship because what this means is that people are continually, continually offered off-ramps. Mm. It's like the temptation in the garden is coming at constant scale and the smartest minds in the world are actually sort of working behind the scenes to push you off, distract you, uh, give you incredible opportunities. And Han talks about you're not so much oppressed with a big no, an angry no, and someone with the sort of secret police uniform. You're actually oppressed with the friendly person with a big yes, who's going to offer you everything you want. So it doesn't say to you in the West, you cannot follow Christianity. And there's a lot of fear, you know, in, in the culture war conversation, particularly in the church of the last couple of years around is persecution coming, coming? And look, who knows, maybe there may be in some elements of that. But I actually think what we're missing is, yes, persecution, we should always watch out for it. We don't want that to happen and, and pray for people who experience that in certain countries. But the real dominant issue is not persecution, it's seduction. 
that you're told, yeah, you can follow Jesus, but you can have everything else alongside yeah, that. Yeah. And that undermines the call of discipleship, take up your cross that Jesus you know, invites us into. Yeah, completely. It's really helpful to hear it articulated in that way. Um, let's move on to the final point uh, for understanding the environment that we're in, high performance uh, and high exhaustion. Yeah. So the neoliberal individual is not oppressed. They're told that they can become an entrepreneur of the self. Mm-hmm. And so we're not all biz- we're not all billionaires, but everyone is encouraged to be an entrepreneur of the self. And it's really interesting. You see these battles, you know, there's been like the whole Andrew Tate thing and you've got uh, you know, this sort of this huge culture war thing over him and and you're seeing these these interesting battles online where you got people speaking out against him. But you've got I step back from one. There was there was like someone who was like a you know, a lifestyle sort of coach speaking out against Andrew Tate. And I thought, hang on, step back for one sec. There what no one's noticing is that everyone is an entrepreneur of various life hacks and how you can maximize your life. There's just different content. Yeah, okay. So one may be the Andrew Tate version of sort of misogyny and all these terrible things. Another one might be though like, you know, here's how you can maximize your life to be balanced and centered and here's how you can be a more virtuous person or here's all different life hacks that you can bring into your life to sort of hack yourself towards success. But what there is is this overwhelming pressure towards life maximization. Mm. That could be work. That could be recreation, that could be creativity, that could be moral, you know, like how to be a more moral, virtuous person in the world. But the neoliberal individual faces tremendous pressure that they're actually not okay and you need to improve, uh, you know, and and maximise yourself because ultimately that the underlying message is that life is a competitive market. Yeah. And you're competing with others. So just as a corporation is competing with competitors in the marketplace, you as an individual are competing mm-hmm. with others. And so therefore, if you've got a kid, you've got to provide a life of maximum opportunities, maximum experience, maximum recreation, maximum yeah. holidays, maximum learning. Uh, you know, if you're single, you've got to have maximum opportunities to enjoy your singleness, you know, relational connection, you know, finding the right person, going on the right vacation, whatever it may be. There's this element of max maximizing life. So what this means is people are constantly running at high performance. Now, partially what we saw when the pandemic happened was a questioning of this, but I think with the pandemic sort of pulling back, we'll just jump back into it in Mm. new ways. But also people are feeling this definite exhaustion around this. People have this sense, if you look at the housing market in many places at the moment, well, I'm doing all the right things, but I can't afford a house. Yeah. Now, interestingly, what's happening in normally – when you'd have these pressures come of we've got an impending recession, housing bubble might burst, you know, all this stuff going on is people would often turn on the system. This yeah. is the moment to grab the pitchforks and head down to the winter palace and and I don't know, you know, capture the czar and declare a revolution. People don't turn on the system. In this sort of society of could, you turn on yourself. Yeah, okay, mm. go on. Well, I'm not good enough. Mm. I, I, I look online and they're all doing that and I'm not maximizing, oh, what's the life hack I could do? How can I spin the Rubik's Cube to get all the sides to align up? So the pressure comes on self. I'm experiencing mental health. i got self-esteem. I'm experiencing anxiety. Mm. Maybe if I tried mindfulness. So people flip through these various options continually trying to get the right combination like a safe cracker into um, the safe. They never question the system. 
And and Han says this is actually auto-exploitation. Mm. So we actually exploit ourselves. So no one comes with a, with a you know revolver and says, you must sit for six hours a day and just look at these ads because that's what you must do. We do it ourselves. Yes. Because our um, our desires are being tapped to oppress ourselves. We're oppressed by everyone saying yes to us. Um, so this this is a completely different system. And all the ways we have used to talking about this, no one knows how to talk about this. And that's what I preach about Hans' book. And I'm, look, I'm not saying everyone should read it. It's a, a bit of a philosophical book translated from the German, whatever. Read it if you want. But I think there's an articulation I found in that book of, of what life is like now because mm. the conversations from the left, from the right, from people trying to describe this, very few people are seeing this and naming it. But just to bring all those together, what this means is we have disciples that people in our churches that we're trying to disciple who are increasingly atomized and are going to give you less time and presence. Mm. You've got people who are continually being seduced by things all the time, being told that you know the better life is out there and it's continually competing with the, the kingdom of God. That's just happening at them 24-7. And there's this sense that they're trying to perform. So they can come and see your church as a way of this sort of unspoken negotiation can happen where they're like, well, I want to come to a church where I have to be there the least as possible. No one's saying that, but that's what they're doing. Uh, where I can, you know, find, uh, you know, something that seduces me, that attracts me. That's what people are looking for. Yeah. It's less discipleship as it is attraction. Um, and, you know, Alan Hirsch, who, uh, you know, friend and, and, and Boston talked a lot about, um, former boss talked a lot about attractional church. This is almost an attractional model of church at scale mm. when we're trying to compete with this. So it's not just yes. attractional as it bums on seats on Sundays, it's actually attractional because we feel like we're going to compete with the seductions of the world. So we need to offer you a model of life maximization. Um, but this is happening at a time when people are sort of falling into exhaustion mm. uh, all at the same time. <laughs> Lots there. That was a small sermon. <laughs> so much there. Um, really helpful to to put words in a framework around this to understand the the type of culture that – um, many of our congregations sort of exist in. Uh, so from here, what's what are some suggestions that you have perhaps in discipling the neoliberal self? If we're going to create this, an ecosystem of discipleship in yeah. an increasingly atomized um, world uh, where people aren't giving time, what, what does it look like to create mm. an environment? Mm. Well, Take out your pens because here are the three answers, how to fail safe disciple. <laughs> uh, okay. So number one, this is an adaptive leadership challenge and yes. uh, we are going on a journey together to try and work this out. And I think this is going to be many people's listening's life work. Yeah. Secondly, we're doing this, you know, we realize we live in a networked world and the great thing is that in the midst of the network, the kingdom of God has a network of people who are connected mm. and working this out and that sort of intelligence of people praying and depending upon God. Um, we're working at this. So I'm not going to yeah. sell anyone some snake oil here and say, I've got all the answers because mm -hmm. I'm just trying to sketch out the challenge before us. But I do believe the Holy Spirit uh, can inspire us to, to, to deal with this. But just mm -hmm. some initial thinking. I think we need to realize that success is not just gathering, success is discipling. Yeah. I think in the neoliberal world, and look, I think there is even a bit of turning on this, you can gather a crowd. You know, if you offer them enough stuff and – uh, you know, you operate at scale, you can gather a crowd. But the real challenge is discipling people. 
And, you know, are the people coming into church going to be profoundly more like Jesus in 10 years is the questions we need to ask. Now, one of the challenges that we're facing at the moment, we've talked about this sometimes, is that we're in a moment where a lot of what I'm talking about here can be ignored, forgotten, because the technologies that we have, our ability to communicate information at scale has grown. Mm-hmm. So we can, through technology, broadcast more information, more content, and that's fantastic. We're doing it right now. The fact that three people here in Melbourne can communicate to people across the world very quickly and produce this in a short turnaround is amazing. Mm. So I'm not having a go at that. But what we can do as well is we can mistake our ease that we now have and our expanded broadcast capabilities of information. We can mistake that for our difficulty increasingly in going, taking people through transformation. Okay. It's a lot more easy now to communicate information, but it's becoming harder to move towards transformation. That is a key concept we have to get our heads around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that that we've talked about at different times on here, and it's worth repeating, is we're at a moment where the scales have tipped back to the universal church. What, what do I mean by that? There is the universal church that we're all part of. Um, there are people listening to this um, who are in different countries, different denominations, different congregations uh, within different denominations. And you know, if you're a follower of Jesus and and you know you're part of God's church, then we're all part of the universal church, and that's mm. a beautiful, incredible thing. And we are currently providing information through this podcast to the universal church. Then there's a local church. The local church is the place where you embody in person over a period of time, committed to a particular group of people, go on a journey with those particular group of people with a mission to a particular area and you transform. Now you transform in a local church in a way that you cannot by just being part of the universal church. Now I think partially what happened with the pandemic was in that first few months when the world was locked down and we realized that we could ju- everyone was streaming and we could jump online and watch services everywhere. Mm. There was this almost this thing that you can almost become a universal church Christian. And I think this is happening. There are people who listen to that worship album over there and I'll listen to that sermon over there and I'll watch that church online there and I'll read that book. Now that stuff if it's just understood as information and perhaps inspiration and learning from the universal church, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I'm on this podcast. I was just on Carrie Newhouse podcast. Like that's providing resources for the universal church. Brilliant. That cannot though be a substitute mm. for the local church because the local church is the place where trans it's the hothouse where transformation happens. And at this moment, the tools, if you like, suit the universal church better mm-hmm. than they do the local church. Um, the danger is we start to make, and I think I made comments last week about how prime ministers and presidents started running their countries like they were mini versions of globalization. Similar concept here. People can start running churches as if they're mini versions of the universal church where people come every three weeks, they, they have an app and they listen to a podcast and that's your engagement with the church and you know you just turn over your congregation every two years. The cultural, the, the cultural technological artifacts are meaning we can do universal church better and information transformation better, yeah. but the cultural context means it's more difficult for the local church. Now, if we continue down this track and just let that play out as is, we are going to have a massive discipleship crisis, which I think is actually breaking out now mm. in a few years um, because we're going to have a lack of disciples. So 
I, I, I want to add one more thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, Simon Berger, the sort of Silicon Valley thinker guy, wrote something really interesting. He's written a lot about. I've mentioned him on here before, and just something he wrote sparked a thought for me. So this is all happening at the same time. There's another cultural change happening now, primarily in discipleship in local church environments people change when they are discipled or apprenticed by others who are are ahead of them in the faith Mm -hmm. Uh, my life is so richly rewarded by older faithful christians who have poured into me and still who pour into me and that's been the prime place that god has grown me through those relationships. Mm-hmm. If I just sat and listened to a bunch of sermons, read a bunch of books, I would have not had the growth and not been challenged, at times rebuked, at other times shaped, at other times encouraged, at other times inspired. That happens in a life on life, passing down of essential knowledge. Mm. Now, societies throughout history have understood that's how people change. This is why most essential knowledge around, say, trades or crafts are passed down through an apprenticeship. Wisdom in many cultures is passed down through an apprenticeship. Now, we're mistaken, I think we've talked about this before, information transfer with essential knowledge transfer. Information transfer, I can just give you a a PDF, I can give you a book, I can give you a, a video, and you get the information. Essential knowledge, wisdom is passed down on a life on life manner. Yeah. Okay. That's what happens in the local church. Samuel Berger talked about the fact that civilizational decline happens when the mechanisms for passing on essential knowledge are broken. Mm-hmm. Now he said the problem we have going forward, and he's more talking just looking at Western civilization in general. He's not talking about the church. But he made this point. He said emerging generations increasingly see the kind of apprenticeship, master, student type relationships that are used to pass on essential knowledge, they increasingly see them as cult-like and creepy. Yeah, wow. Now, we've seen across the place an increasing dynamic where uh, uh, you've seen this, where there has been legitimate things where people need to call out and leaders above them, and that's been legitimate, but also because the technological thing goes over to one side where it's easier to people to broadcast, you've also seen this increasing trend everywhere of people have been discipled for a few years and then they just turn against the person who's been discipling them because there's been a power shift. Again, power's not frontal, it's angular in this new dynamic. So even movies, it's interesting, you're seeing more movies where you've sort of got the genius, uh, like this new Kate Blanchett film, mm-hmm. um, you've got the sort of genius composer. This is even what we talked about last week with Noma, yes. the restaurant in, yeah, in yeah. Copenhagen, where the genius chef is now being turned on, the genius you know, uh, composer or the genius, you know, even Steve Jobs now, people like starting to turn on him. Uh, he's sort of, he's sort of, well, he did things. And they're seen as the power is bad and it's sort of the people who are under them. Now, again, too, often in those scenarios, there is a power imbalance and often there is abusive behavior. Does yes. that happen 110%? But also if we throw the baby out with the bathwater, you're going to have people who are not willing to go on the discipleship journey. That is a huge challenge for discipleship systems that people have not thought through. Okay, what to do? (laughs) Uh, A couple of things. And and again, too, I don't have all the answers. This is Rebuilders is a journey where we sketch out uh, these thoughts and help us understand the play of the field that we need to play the game on. Mm. One thing I found interesting is two concepts I just want to, I just want to put before us. Number one is when I, I, I came after uh, seeing the little 
Wesley Church in the city and the classrooms where people got discipled and where they had their sort of conferences and the Sunday school rooms and that that example of this transported discipleship ecosystem in stone. And and I went back and read uh, Wesley. Now, when I, one thing that struck me was when I went to London, I'd read of, and often the story we hear of the Great Awakenings of, the 22,000 people that came out and heard Wesley preach in a field somewhere. Mm. But going into the classroom, I'm like, where he had his sort of discipleship societies, when you go to his little his little uh, sort of compound in East London, it's not a big room. Like we're in a studio. It's possibly the size of our studio. And I'm like, wow, this would be like 30 people. Yeah. Now I began to sort of research this and what I noticed was that Wesley would talk about, you know, he went and preached in Newcastle or Leeds or Bristol and 20,000 people turned out, 10,000 people turned out, 18,000 people turned out. And then he'll say something like, and 30, 30 joined the society or 80 joined the society. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is fascinating. So we are in our vision of what revival renewal is. We're all focused on the 30,000 people in the field. We love the story of the 30,000 people in the field and the Holy Spirit falls on people and they're rolling around and overcome with the Spirit. Now, when you read Wesley, that occasionally happened in the field, but yeah. it primarily happened in the, in the class, yes, in the society, in the smaller group. And what you realize what Wesley was doing, it's very similar to Jesus. Jesus would preach often the parables to the, the, the crowds, but then explain it to the disciples. Yes, There was a sense of who really wants to know this stuff, who's willing to come on the journey and follow me. So what this means is Wesley's was, was at the forefront of creating a great awakening the crowds often disappeared. But really what the Great Awakening and the revival and renewal that it created, which was then sustained for several generations, over several generations, it wasn't just a burst, it was a long-term thing because it built an interlocking connection of smaller groups of people who were willing to go on the discipleship journey. So what was happening? This is my second principle. So number one, we've got to re-understand, re-examine our understanding of scale we're obsessed with the big crowd, mm. but it's not the crowd. It's how many people you then you get to come on a discipleship journey with you and go deeper and how many people are willing to take that journey to learn the essential knowledge of what it is to be a follower of the kingdom of God and be reshaped and not just want the information which you get in the crowd, but the transformation that you then get in the smaller group and yes. whatever that looks like in our, in our world going forward. The second thing is I was listening to a, a, a podcast and – uh, about soccer, football, and how do youth players get trained? And and basically, what this person was arguing that they said that professionals who get to play in the Premier League or whatever, they'd worked out scientifically that at a younger age there was a certain amount of minutes they got on the field with the ball at their feet in high pressure situations. Mm-hmm. And the amount of minutes they got in those situations directly then related to their success in the game going forward. Okay. And I thought about this idea that they talk about as the minutes, the minutes touching the ball. And even like, you know, as a five-year-old, are you practicing with the ball at your feet? Minutes, right? So how much minutes do you get doing the essential things that you need to do that's going to make you successful at the top level? Mm -hmm. And I thought about this and I thought what's happening is our content's increasing the minutes that we have in those sort of discipleship environments, iron sharpening iron, Mm. listening to someone, hearing someone confess, praying for someone, sharing the gospel, helping the poor, like the minutes of doing actual kingdom stuff are shrinking. Mm. People are coming less. 
And so part of the thing going forward here is in this very high performance, busy, neoliberal world that we're in, that I think is in some kind of flux at the moment, like it's entering into gray zone, things are changing, but it's going to continue for a little time. How in the midst of that do we not just go, oh, we had, I don't know, this many people in the auditorium on Sunday, good on us, well done, when half those people disappear, don't come back and are coming every four weeks, to a new mentality of like, what are the discipleship minutes? What Wesley did at his time is he created these environments, these spaces, which people went into. They moved around from them. People went to a society of like 30, you know, it was like about, it was about 50 to 80 people, 100 people in a society. Mm -hmm. There were classes which might be sort of 12 to 20. There were like the smaller bands and stuff like this, or sort of three or four. And people could say it was a very flexible system that was adaptive. They were working on it as, as it went and changed it through the years. But people were able to get discipleship minutes in those spaces and that's what created this incredible renewal across the entire world. Mm -hmm. So our strategy needs to move towards away from just how many bums on seats on a Sunday, wow, we're doing really well. You know, that's fine. Like that, that's okay. To what are the discipleship kingdom of God minutes that the people we have experiencing. Now, that doesn't mean too that, you know, well, I have people in discipleship groups in my church for 17 hours a week. It's also the quality of the minutes. Yes. Mm -hmm. What are you doing in those spaces? You're going to have less time with people, but we've got to create environments and ecosystems where people are growing. And I think that's some of the answers that we're are going to emerge. And I'm really excited. It's not just going to be us here at Rebuild. It's going to be people out there listening and applying this in all kinds of contexts. That's yeah. the super exciting thing is uh, – how do we create discipleship ecosystems? Uh, it's going to need a remnant mentality. Uh, Wesley had a remnant mentality. It's not the 22,000 people at the rally. It's the 80 people who then decide to say yes to a discipleship environment. And then how, well, how, do we, how do we get them to have more minutes? How do we get them to have more quantitative and qualitative minutes? Just some ways to think about it. Mm. Super helpful. And this feels like, you know, just the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. Um, so encouraging and yeah, I guess we, we pray that it is helpful for you and your teams as you start to think about what it looks like to lead, um, in this environment and build people who, or build congregations that are full of people whose heart is seeking to follow Jesus, um, seeking to live out his kingdom in your cities, um, in your nations. Any other final thoughts? I think that was a great summary. Oh, great. <laughs> All right, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks.